A picture hangs in London, painted by Charles Halloway. It's one of the most tragic yet true thought-provoking pictures ever painted. It portrays a mountain sloping down to a cliff. And at the bottom of the cliff, there's a graveyard shrouded in mist. And on the cliff, a crowd of men and women, some in formal wear, some in work clothes, others in rags. All these people packed the mountain slope. All are trying to reach higher than someone else. They seem to be tearing at each other, stepping on each other, shoving and pushing, trying to get the furthest and the highest. And at the top of the picture is a, a filmy female, a seductive, taunting, mocking figure that floats just out of reach. And what is that figure? Pleasure. Pleasure. The painting is entitled The Pursuit of Pleasure. And on the gray, ghostly, sunless canvas, there's not one happy face, not one flicker of joy, no hint of a smile. There's nothing but fear, hatred, selfishness, and pain. The Pursuit of Pleasure. Today we're going to talk about the world that that painting portrays. And I'd like you to turn to James 4. We're going to look at the pursuit of pleasure. James 4, the fourth chapter in the book of James. First 10 verses. It's on page 979 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Or you can follow it on the projection. James 4, 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend it what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. There's a lot, lot in this passage today. And I'm going to try to unpack as much as I can so that we have an understanding, hopefully, of where James is going with this. Fights and quarrels. Say, what? Here? In the church? He's, he's writing to good Christian folk. How is that possible? Well, when we know human nature, we ask the question, how is that not possible? That's really the question. Because inside each human heart is the desire to please oneself. Please oneself. It's innate. It's inborn. It's natural for us to seek pleasure. But if I'm seeking my pleasure, where does that leave you? What about what pleases you? Sooner or later, 
seeking my pleasure and seeking your pleasure are going to collide. And voila, we got conflict, conflict. You find it in marriage, you find it in family, you find it in relationships, you find it everywhere. Conflict of desire for pleasure. Our, our wills collide and you have conflict. And James says pleasure-seeking or pursuit of pleasure is a plot problem. Now, pleasure is not wrong. We'll, we'll look at that later. But the selfish pursuit of pleasure causes all kinds of problems. Let's begin with the causes of pleasure-seeking. Roman numeral one. Causes of pleasure-seeking. These are the sources of pleasure-seeking. He says, first of all, it's inner desires. Inner desires. Verse one says, they come from your desires that battle within you. Uh, the New Living Translation says it this way. Isn't it the whole army of evil desires at war within you? Does anyone here experience an inner conflict? Anybody ever have an inner conflict? Okay. Anybody here have the desire trying to, a desire trying to take control of you? Yeah, we fight a war. We fight a war. Romans seven twenty three puts it this way. It says, I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Now, that's not church members, okay? That's members of our physical body and our, our being, part of our bodies. The pursuit of pleasure, seeking to please ourselves, permeates our world, and it always has. These are inner desires, and they reside in every human being. Okay? The second cause of pleasure-seeking is called lust. Lust. It says you want something but don't get it. Lust is the desire to gratify our senses. And those, those desire to satisfy our senses might be physical desire. It could be ego. It could be recognition. It could be the desire for luxury or comfort or convenience, material things, sexual gratification, drugs, or alcohol. But what is this about murder? You probably thought, saw that too and go, wait, wait a minute, that's a, big, that's a big leap, isn't it? It says you want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Wow. Well, actually, you know, we see that every day. There's a progression when desire is denied. When desire is denied. Lust without fulfillment eventually produces hate. And hate is equal to murder, according to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, James is not saying that people in the church are killing each other. Okay? He's not saying there's, you're killing each other. But he's pointing out the dangers of this progression that can happen when people lust and choose pleasure to the exclusion of God. And actually today, we see this progression happen all the time. A person is married but wants someone else, and to be free, they kill their spouse. Ever read about that in the paper? Ever see reports of that? A person is denied something for a long time, Money, for instance, they can't have it so slowly they grow to hate the person in a way and eventually murder them. Have we seen any instances of that? Yeah. This is not just primetime TV. It is real. It's real. And the instance where the hatred for another person's daughter who got the best cheerleading role and was killed by a jealous mother. It happens. It it's inside. It's inside of human beings to do that. 
And it happened throughout the Bible. Cain killed Abel. King Ahab murdered Naboth because he couldn't have his vineyard. It's crazy. King David murdered Uriah to have his wife Bathsheba. Lust, desire, denied can produce hatred and even murder. It's crazy, crazy. Wow, is that in us? James says it's possible. Now, the third source of pleasure-seeking is coveting or envy or jealousy. Now, do you ever see something someone else has and wish you had it? I mean, I'll be driving down the freeway and I see this incredible car and I go, oh, I wish I had that. Everybody's out with their convertibles now, okay? And I go, oh, I wish I had it. You know, you just see that and you go, I would like to ha- I'd like to be driving that right now. Maybe you just got a new car three years ago and it's losing its new car smell. The, the kids leave french fries in the back seat and there's a rattle in the dash. And it all happens. And then into your driveway drives your neighbor to show you his brand new SUV. It has those new rope LED running lights and a Bose sound system. And you, do you ever get covetous? Your friend buys a brand new house bigger and better than yours. Or somebody goes on a Caribbean cruise and keeps posting it on Facebook. I hate it when people do that. Especially in the winter, middle of winter, it's 30 below and they're posting Caribbean cruise sitting in the sun. I can't believe they do that. We, we feel like everyone's on vacation except me. Maybe your brother just got his dream job. How many of you know at least one person you went to school with that made it big? Anybody? Yeah. They made it big and they're successful. It's like, no, we compare. Coveting, a source of pleasure seeking. And insecurity within us forces us to take our value signals by comparing ourselves to others. Okay? It's in us. We just compare. We just see what other people have or do or whatever, and we just compare. Comparisons breed dissatisfaction. It breeds competitions, trying to outdistance other people. Lloyd Ogilvie writes this. He says, healthy competition in sport or business can be part of the fun of life. Most of us have experienced that in some aspect, competition. However, James's concern is what envious competition does to our relationships. It denies Christ's victory over sin and death by substituting our values for his. We keep running a race we've already won at Calvary. We take our readings from others rather than Christ and his victory for all of us. And when envy comes in into the church, it becomes a house of judgment instead of fellowship, mutual esteem and encouragement. Everyone's life looks better than ours. We, we just want to live the other person's life. You know, it just looks so good. Coveting. The root cause of the pursuit of pleasure. So the causes of pleasure-seeking, those are just some of them. So what are the consequences? What are some of the consequences of pleasure-seeking? What are the results or effects of this pursuit of pleasure? First one, he says, conflicts. There are fights and quarrels, James says. My pursuit of pleasure collides with your pursuit of pleasure, and we got conflict. Since it's based on selfishness, we have conflict and quarrels. So when we live in that realm, it happens, conflicts. The second consequence he lists is 
ineffective prayer. Ineffective prayer. Verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, it's with wrong motives. I know you never ask something from God with wrong motives. <laughs> it's like, ah. This, this is kind of like independence. I don't have something because I don't think I need God, so I try to do it myself. There's independence. Independence equals ineffective prayer. Prayer, true prayer means I need God. I need God. And if we're obsessed with the pursuit of pleasure, we don't have a clue what God wants. What, what does God want? I don't know. I'm, I'm, it's for me. It's about me. So our prayers then become inappropriate. So the, this independence and this inappropriateness, uh, it's like, God, give me an inheritance to get me out of debt. And God's trying to teach me how to be self-controlled in my spending. God promises to answer prayers according to his will. Discover God's will, then pray for it. And he said, you're asking with wrong motives. Wrong motives. Motives for me or for myself, for my pleasure. So then we quit praying. Doesn't, it's not working. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever quit praying for something. I have. I give up. I give up. Well, what are my motives? The third consequence of pleasure-seeking is emptiness. Emptiness. If the pursuit of pleasure dominates our lives, real satisfaction is totally elusive. Elusive. We pray, we do not receive, so there's just emptiness. And emptiness is the characteristic of our world today. Emptiness. Look at people around us without Jesus. Empty eyes, empty lives, restlessness, lack of direction. Driven, busy, but never satisfied. The question for all of us is, does my life mirror emptiness or does it counter emptiness? Is the aim of my life to seek pleasure or to gratify my desires or is it to submit to God's will? Emptiness. And the fourth consequence, a fourth consequence of pleasure seeking, something called spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. We don't hear that term very often. But in verse 4 it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? The New Living Translation says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship in this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if your aim is to enjoy this world, you can't be a friend of God. Wow. Adultery is a term used when a married person is unfaithful to their spouse. We have vows, and our vows are love and affection with one, for one person for life. We, the church, the body of Christ, are called the bride of Christ. And if we love something or someone more than Jesus, it is being unfaithful in our relationship to him. Unfaithfulness. All throughout the Bible, God uses marriage as an illustration and talks about the unfaithfulness of God's people who pursue other things in place of God. And this is called spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Jeremiah 2, 2 says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through the land not sown or planted. And he's speaking of God's people, the nation of Israel. They were pursuing pleasure first. Disobeying God is like breaking marriage vows. And all sin... All sin is against love. 
All sin is against love. Our relationship with God is not a distant relationship, but it's to be an intimate relationship like a husband and a wife. Husband and wife. Romans 8, 7 says, The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Hostile means it is an active word. It's not passive. It's diametrically opposed. We cannot sit on the fence. Okay. If someone thinks they're straddling the fence with God, they're not. They're not. Either we're for God or we're against God. And if we pursue pleasure first, it says we are hostile to God. Strong words. Strong words. The New Living Translation says, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with this world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, that if your aim is to enjoy this world, you can't be a friend of God. Strong words. Where, have to ask, where are my affections? What, what am I seeking? Am I seeking after God? The fifth consequence of pleasure of seeking is the jealousy of God. Jealousy of God. Verse 5. Verse 5 says, Or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now, there are two types of jealousy. Two types of jealousy. And Pastor Josh covered this last Sunday very adequately, very well, where he talked about the two types of jealousy. One is positive, which is constructive and protective, jealously guarding your relationship with your, with your spouse. The negative part of jealousy is destructive, selfish, and controlling, wanting to control. Love gives and demands an exclusive devotion to one person. That's not a new challenge. Sometimes women are overly suspicious of their husbands. When Adam stayed out very late for a few nights, Eve became upset. You're running around with other women, she said. Adam said, that's ridiculous. You're the only woman on earth. They continued to have this fight until they went to sleep. And Adam woke up sometime later. Someone was poking him in the chest. It was Eve. And he said, what are you doing? She said, counting your ribs. Okay. So we have the causes of pleasure seeking. If you need more time, I'll give you more time for that. Right. Consequences of pleasure seeking. Next, let's look at the counterbalance to pleasure seeking. Now, let's start with the parameters of pleasure. Parameters of pleasure. Number one, all pleasures were invented by God. Okay? All pleasures were invented by God. God, God invented them. He made them up. Okay? And Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Pleasure originated with God. Whether it's taste and foods family relationships, physical desires. It all starts with God. It needs to start with God and enjoy him first. Psalm 1611 says, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's with God. Psalm 34, 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot of books. C.S. Lewis, and if you have never read any of C.S. Lewis, I encourage you to find anything he's written. And I'm going to give you a quote from 
One of, his, one of his books called The Screwtape Letters. How many of you read The Screwtape Letters? Okay. It's a conversation between the devil and his, his underlings that are trying to figure out what to do with Christians. Long story. But anyway. So the senior devil, this is C.S. Lewis' book, Screwtape Letters. The senior devil says to his understudy, whose name is Wormwood. And he says this. Never forget that when, when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy normal, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. The enemy, of course, to them is God. On the enemy's ground. He said, I know we've won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it's his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us, the devil, to produce one. All we can do is encourage humans to take pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is least natural. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. So he admits God, God created pleasures, but it's using them in a diminishing way away from the purpose for which he created pleasure. So God created pleasure. What Satan tries to do is get us to pervert them and use them in the wrong way. God invented pleasure. Number two, people were naturally made to seek pleasure. People were naturally made to seek pleasure. The desire for pleasure is inborn. It's healthy and it's in God's perspective. Ecclesiastes 2, 24 to 25 says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? People were naturally made to seek pleasure. It's innate. It's part of who we are. Number three, this puts it in perspective. God wants us to immerse ourselves in his pleasure by immersing ourselves in him first. God wants us to immerse ourselves in his pleasure by immersing ourselves in him. The Westminster Confession says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Glorify God, then satisfy yourselves. They're not mutually exclusive. Matthew 6, very well-known passage. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Start with God. Immerse ourselves with God. Make sure that that relationship is number one. And the pleasures will follow. What kinds of things is he talking about? He's talking about food, drink, clothes, provisions, pleasures. Then there's this little verse in verse 6, a promise of grace. Promise of grace, letter B. But he gives more grace. More grace for what? God makes great demands, but he also gives great grace to meet the demands. God in his love does not abandon us in our unfaithfulness. And he doesn't leave us powerless. God's demand for undivided allegiance goes hand in hand with his supply of the supernatural help to give that allegiance. In other words, he knows we don't have it in ourselves, but he gives us his grace and he gives us his Holy Spirit to accomplish this in us, through us. So it's not in our power or strength. I don't want you to leave today and say, man, there's no way I can do that. Good. If that's what you say, that's good. God's power of his Holy Spirit through us, in us, can accomplish that. And that's part of his grace, unmerited favor that he gives us. 
so that we can live in that unmerited, that's unlimited power, pursuing God first and then following with pleasures. We can't receive that grace until we see our need for it. God opposes the proud, it says, but gives grace to the humble. Admit our need, that's humbling. Now we're going to very quickly just look at some action steps we can take. Action steps. Verse 7, submit to God, submit to God. This command, submit to God, follows a passage on this pursuit of pleasure because we can't pursue pleasure without submitting to God first. And this submit to God is an imperative. It's a command in the Greek. And there's a note of urgency in it. Submit to God. Be submissive to God and find success. Now, if you're to take a seminar... You're going to take a seminar on how to be successful. Most likely the theme is going to be assertiveness or how to be assertive, how to take control, control your life, control your opponents, control your destiny, whatever that is. Assert yourself. And that's our natural tendency, but we cannot succeed that way. 1 Peter 5b through 7 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So success in our Christian life begins with humility and submission to God. Submission to God. The culture around us is obsessed with the pursuit of pleasure. And rather than reflect that value, we counter that value by pursuing God and submitting to God. It's countercultural. It's, it's totally different than what we think, is it, think it is. And the question is, am I consistent? Am I consistent in my, my pursuit of God? There was a famous Hollywood singer who was arrested for drunken behavior one Saturday night, and the next morning she sang in a Sunday morning service. When a reporter asked about the apparent contradiction, she replied, my religion and my personal life are two different matters. Really? Really? One man was asked if he is a Christian. He replied, I'm a Christian. I'm just not a practicing Christian. Hello? Is there, is there a contradiction there? Being a Christian is not like having a profession like a doctor or lawyer who just happens not to be practicing law or medicine at the moment. Okay? That's what I do for a profession. Being a Christian permeates every part of our life. Christianity is a personal faith that is who we are as people. And we are called to trust God and be in submission to him. Submit to God. That's the beginning. Submit to God. Then it says, he says, resist the devil. And some people say, the devil? You mean there's a devil? You don't have to believe in a personal being called the devil or Satan. There are people that question that. They say, I don't, I don't know if I do that. But you cannot believe the Bible and deny the existence and activity of a spiritual being called the devil and his demons. You'll find references about Satan from Genesis through Revelation. And James commands us, he says, resist him. Resist him. Now, what does that mean? It means take a stand against him. It means stand up to him or fight back. Ephesians 4.27 says, do not give the devil a foothold or don't give the devil an opportunity. Not long ago, we looked at Ephesians 6, the fact that we are at war. A spiritual war. 
Our world is fighting a war against God. Good versus evil, right versus wrong. God versus Satan. And we are participants in this war, like it or not. And there's no place for passivity. We can't be passive. Where does the battle take place? Ephesians 6, 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you want to see this whole passage unpacked, last, last year I preached uh, when we went through Ephesians. There's a passage on Ephesians 6 entitled Rule, Rules of Engagement. If you want to get more about that, and I don't have time to go into that this morning. But Rules of Engagement, Ephesians 6, talking about the war that we are in. And it's really an incredible hidden war that's come to the surface. So what are the results? The devil will flee from you. The devil will flee from you. It doesn't say you have to somehow match him blow for blow. Right? It, says, it just says resist him. Take a stand against him. And he will flee. It, says, it doesn't say he'll just leave you alone. It says he'll flee. Some of us think we, we have to win this huge battle, war, or whatever. No. It says resist the devil. Take a stand against him. He will flee from you. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the Holy Spirit in you. He will flee from you. Third command is come near to God. How do we come near to God? We, first of all, it talks about washing hands. Um, we sin. We still sin. We need to confess. So I've talked about spiritual breathing, the fact that every day we do something or some things that, that offend God or, or that are wrong or sinful. And what we do is we confess it. We say, God, I, I've sinned. We breathe out the bad and we appropriate the forgiveness. Breathe out, breathe in. Breathe, spiritual breathing. Breathe out, breathe in. So, and as, as soon as you become aware that you've sinned, confess it. Get, out, get it out of there. Don't go, oh, no, and then dwell on it. No. Breathe out, breathe in. It's like we have to breathe all the time physically. Breathe out, breathe in. You have to, you have to do that. That's the part of the appropriation that we have. Confess it. And when you wash your hands and confess your sin, it removes the barrier to the relationship with God. Then he says, purify your hearts. James calls them double-minded or two-faced or two-hearted. And he says, your loyalty needs to be to God alone. Then he says, be sorry. Three words used are grieve, mourn, and wail. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. So when we do that, we are truly sorry. Now, I don't know what you did with your kids when you were raising your kids, but if one of my kids did something and they said they were sorry and they showed no emotion, I wondered if they were truly sorry. I said, you know, I don't know if they're really sorry. So I'd try to make them sorry. And then you see emotion, you see grieving because they realize. Now, it's not that we have to run around grieving and mourning all the time, but true godly sorrow brings repentance. In other words, godly sorrow that we are truly sorry, not blithely, lightly. Then he says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. Then God will exalt you. Then you will succeed. Oh, we went through a whole bunch of stuff this morning. And every one of us wants Pleasure. Every one of us was made to experience pleasure. 
And James gives us the guidelines to experience true pleasure pursuing God first. Do we want to experience true pleasure? That's the pursuit of pleasure. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us guidelines. That we can acknowledge, God, that these are human things inside each and every one of us. And I just pray that we would be godly people who seek you first and know that you will send all these things and add all these things to our lives. And I pray, God, that you will empower us for that. We need you to do that. We can't do it on our own. And as we humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that, I just pray that you will help all of us to see how you desire our lives to be full of joy, full of pleasure, full of incredible relationship with Jesus. Let's stand, shall we?